This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. So today for our hot question, we are talking about organ donation. And here's why. There's a new report out that tells us some 223 patients died in Canada while waiting for an organ transplant in 2018. This is a report that came out from the Canadian Institute for Health Information. So we are getting better at this, but we also have way more people who need uh, an organ uh, for whatever reason. And so health problems, there's so many more people on the list. So we're not quite keeping up with that demand there. So we're asking you today for our hot question of the day, are you a registered organ donor? Do you say, yes, of course, it saves lives? No, but I intend to. And I know there's a lot of people out there who would answer that, that you would like to, but maybe for whatever reason, you just haven't gotten around to doing it. And then there's the third category, which is, no, I don't really want to. So which one are you? So you can go online and cast your vote. You'll find it at CKNW or at Simisara980. You can also email me and tell me about it, simi at cknw.com or call our buzz line 604-331-2899. Now we had posted this all oh, about half an hour or so ago. So we've already gotten quite a few results here. 71% of people have said, yes, they are registered because it saved lives. 22% though say no, but they intend to, so they would like to. 7% say no, they don't want to. Hilda said, I'm registered. I registered all my kids at birth. Now that they are older, I have talked to them about it and asked if it was okay, and they said yes. Hilda, you sound like you are on it. So good for you. Also, uh, John tweeted to say it really should be an opt-out system. Well, that's another discussion that we often have when it comes to organ donation. But anyway, we're going to be talking more about this report coming up. But in the meantime, for our hot question of the day, we want to know, are you registered as an organ donor? Yes, it saves lives. No, but I would like to. Like, I intend to register. Or no, you don't want to. Let us know where you come down on this. Again, you can find that at CKNW or at simisarah.com. Let's talk about getting to the airport. For some people, it's very easy, right? For others, though, it can be a chore. And that is one of the reasons why the airport out in Abbotsford has seen such an increase in usage in recent years. But that also comes with a bit of a downside as well. You've got so many people coming into that airport, but they it's very difficult for them to kind of connect if they perhaps have to get over to YVR. It's difficult for them to get around and to and from that particular airport. That's one of the reasons why the mayor of Abbotsford is raising some concerns, saying, hey, listen, Public transportation needs to be talked about more, especially through the Fraser Valley. So we thought, let's check in with the mayor of Abbotsford, Henry Braun, and talk to him more about this. And he joins us now. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for the invite, uh, Simi. Look forward to it. Well, how busy is Abbotsford Airport these days? It is uh, increasing every day. Three years ago, we were at 500,000 passengers. This year and three years, we'll be at uh, pushing through a million, uh, probably right between Christmas and New Year's. That is crazy busy. So what are some of the challenges that have come from that? Well, uh, transportation, uh, or one of the most significant issues facing not only Abbotsford, but for the Fraser Valley region generally, is transportation. And we have been uh, advocating for the widening of Highway 1 for many, many years, and it is well past time for widening. But 
a lot of these million passengers that are coming to our airport, and that number is increasing, are coming from points west because it's easier for them. And with the ultra low cost uh, platform operating platform that we have in at, for our airport, which is the lowest in North America, is attracting passengers from Metro Vancouver. And and this is we're going to be at a million and a half, two million. I predict 2.5 million in not that many years. And so where do they all go, though? Like, where do they park? How do they get around? Well, parking is not a... We have uh, plenty of land uh, on the airport uh, proper uh, for parking. That's not an issue. But getting to and from the airport can be challenging with a two-lane freeway that was built in 1962 and in a region where there were 61,000 people living out in the Fraser Valley, what is today the Fraser Valley Regional District, there is over 305,000 today. And, of course, Abbotsford is the fifth largest city in British Columbia, uh, comprises one half of that population of 305. And do you think, Mayor Braun, that sometimes uh, the Fraser Valley doesn't get included enough in the discussions about transit? I think the Fraser Valley is getting short shrift on many things, not just uh, transportation. Uh, I, we could talk about the hospital as well, but we'll stick with transportation today. But no, and we are not at many of the tables that we ought to be at. Uh, our transit system be, uh, in, in Abbotsford, I think, is one of the larger ones in BC Transit, yet we have no representation on that board. I, I think we should, given the size of where we are. We're doing our bit in the city, but getting from here to Vancouver anywhere is an issue with a two-lane freeway. Transit can't be developed on a two-lane freeway. I'll be thankful if we get three, but really, if we really were wanting to be ahead of the game, we should be, that freeway should be widened to four so that you could have a dedicated transport truck lane uh, and a dedicated HOV, right. electric vehicles, and all of the rest, and... Uh, it would just make life so much easier. You know, Mayor Braun, I guess Metro Vancouver mayors have been very good at kind of lobbying, right? Getting together and doing that through the district. Do, do Fraser Valley mayors need to do that then as well? Well, we, yes, we do do that. But let's be honest here. The the population is in Metro Vancouver and with the larger uh, jurisdictions, uh, four of them, which are ahead of us in terms of population, come from Metro Vancouver. And so, they have their ear. You know, just to give you an example, at UBCM, we went through the Lower Mainland Local Government Association, which we're a part of, for the wi- to put a recommendation on the agenda for the widening of Highway 1. We couldn't get it on the floor because the UBCM, uh, which is ma- mainly mostly uh, Metro Vancouver, um, said it was a, a, a city issue, and so therefore it shouldn't be discussed at, at a provincial level. And I, I couldn't believe that when I heard that. Because this is not a city issue. This is not even a regional issue. This is a provincial. It is a regional issue, but it's a provincial issue and a Canadian issue that is affecting negatively our economy in British Columbia to the tune of $1.2 billion, according to the C.D. Howe Institute. And we're not paying enough attention to this. Okay, so then where do you turn to then? Have you talked to the provincial government about this? Oh, yes. The premier is well aware of our needs, and uh, uh, whenever he sees me coming, (laughs) I think he knows, (laughs) oh, here comes Highway 1 widening. We had a very good meeting with him and the transportation uh, minister, Trevina, um, uh, earlier this year for an hour and a half at City Hall here, actually. I think it was the first time an NDP premier had been here, uh, uh, although maybe Mike Harcourt was here too. But anyways, 
um, they get it. They were actually, I think, uh, they're, uh, they were surprised at the amount of money that this is costing the economy. Right. And, and the number, we're also the largest, one of the largest ag, uh, or sorry, aggregate producers. A lot of the building that's happening in Met- Metro Vancouver, the gravel and the rock is coming from Abbotsford here. There's a truck and tra- transfer truck coming off those quarries every 30 seconds. That's those double box trucks that you yeah. see on the freeway. They're all heading into Vancouver. Transport truck traffic on f- on Highway 1 through Abbotsford has increased 40, 40% in just in the last two years. A lot of that is coming from Alberta, Saskatchewan, Prince George, Kelowna, into our ports because we have a great port system and truck traffic coming from the port right. back to those jurisdictions. What about passenger rail lines? Like, what about increasing those as well to and from the valley? Well, transit. We, yes, transit needs to to come. I've ar- argued, or not argued. I've I've advocated for transit LRT surface rail uh, across the bridge, the new bridge, which. Unfortunately, the government of the day did not make allowances to uh, put uh, LRT across that bridge, and then up the median of the of Highway One. But now that the the cake has been baked, that transit uh, LRT or SkyTrain is going to come to Langley, uh, that probably is not going to happen because I'm not sure how to get from there from from Langley to the freeway. Well, I know how to get there, but that's a long way around. We now have to get to the table to figure out okay. Is TransLink looking at a plan beyond just yeah. city center of Langley out to Abbotsford? Maybe it needs to come to the, well, well it's, I'm guessing it's going to come down Fraser Highway. But have you, have you had those discussions with TransLink? Like, are they looking beyond Langley? Uh, I haven't had discussions with TransLink because uh, I, I really think TransLink's going to do what TransLink wants to do. Uh, we're just a very small minnow in a big pond when it comes to uh, TransLink. But I have had discussions with the Premier, uh, and, and, and so th- those, were, those were all discussions that came out of that meeting, and I've had a several with them since then uh, about the widening of the freeway. Right. And, and they're, they're going to widen the freeway. The problem is I think it's going to be four or five years from now. The current construction will stop just short of 264th, which I think is a big mistake. They need to go right through that uh, yeah. uh, t- 264th beyond at least two kilometers and rebuild that overpass uh, for the transport truck that comes off to the, the uh, comes off of the uh, Gloucester Industrial Park. And um, but it really should be going right. all the way to Watcom Road in this phase and then eventually to Chilliwack and Hope. In a perfect world, it should go to Hope now. In a perfect world. Yep. You're right. In a perfect world, we should be talking about these things. Uh, Mayor Braun, thank you so much for your time on this. Pleasure to be on. That is Abbotsford Mayor Henry Braun raising all sorts of good points about transportation and getting around. We always talk about that, but move beyond Metro Vancouver and anybody on Highway 1 knows this, right? You're on Highway 1, things are moving or even during the slow times, everything's great. And then you get to that part right around 232nd where it narrows, where the previous expansion came to an end. Everybody jams on their brakes, everybody slows down, and then you're narrowing down into those two lanes in either direction. Today, we are talking about organ donation, and that's because there's a new report out that says 223 patients died 
while waiting for an organ transplant last year. The Canadian Institute for Health Information put this report out. And according to that organization, the data shows that Canada is struggling to kind of keep pace with the needs of patients, even though our transplant practices have really improved. Now, the rates of organ donation have increased over the past 10 years. Problem is, wait times are what are continuing to cost patients their lives. They found that nearly 3,000 organ transplants were performed in Canada in 2018. That is a 33% increase since 2009, but more Canadians were still waiting for an organ transplant as well. We wanted to talk more about this now. Our guest is Greg Webster, Director of Acute and Ambulatory Care for the Canadian Institute for Health Information. Greg, thanks for being here. Uh, Thank you for your interest. Well, this is a very hot topic for a lot of people out there. I think it's near and dear because a lot of people know someone or they are that person on the list. Are we seeing more people in need of organ transplants? Uh, Yes, uh, the need for organ transplantation is is growing um, in part as the population size grows and also with an aging population and certain chronic conditions are also increasing Uh, and leading to the need for more organ transplants. What would you say are the most in-demand areas? Uh, By far, uh, the need for kidney transplants, and this is related to uh, what we call end-stage renal disease. So when a person through a number of, for uh, one of a number of reasons, um, most often, for example, diabetes can lead to deterioration of kidney function, and uh, eventually the person's kidneys may be at, at a point where they're no longer able to support the body's needs. And at that point, it's end-stage kidney disease. And in order for the patient to remain alive, they need um, to either be on dialysis on a regular basis or to receive a transplant. And when they receive a kidney transplant, it can either be from a deceased donor, someone that's passed away and agreed to uh, donate their organs, or from a living donor. Across Canada, there were over uh, 1,700 kidney transplants done in 2018. Is that an increase over what we've seen in years past? Uh, It is an increase uh, over the past 10 years. Um, Between 2017 and 2018, we did see the increases that we'd seen over the past 10 years have sort of leveled off. Mm. Um, But we also know that... um, there are more and more people that have end-stage renal disease that need either dialysis or transplant. And we do know that the quality of life for patients that receive a functioning transplant is usually better than it is for someone who's on dialysis. And long-term survival can also be better. Is kidneys, is this a bit of a different area than other organ donation, Greg? Because people can also be living kidney donors, can't they? Uh, Yes, they can. So, both kidneys and uh, livers can be supported uh, by living donors. Um, so there are opportunities to, to help meet the need for uh, kidney transplants through both deceased donation and also living donation, and also to some extent for livers as well. And when it comes to being an organ donor, are, 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 what is the reason do you think that more people aren't doing it? Is it not enough information? Are we not making it easy enough for people? Well, I think um, I think in recent years, in particular, there's been a lot of effort to, to raise awareness around um, the importance of 
of considering organ donation. Obviously, it's a very personal choice. Um, but I think most Canadians are aware of the processes, but more education continues to help with that. And, and many Canadians do decide to be uh, indicate their intention that they would like to be an organ donor. It's also important that they speak with their family members about their wishes um, should they pass away um, so that their family members don't feel conflicted around following through on their wishes. Ah, does that sometimes happen? uh, There is some research that does show that sometimes that can happen where um, maybe all family members aren't aware of what the person's wishes were. And then that can... And it's also obviously a very stressful time for a family when someone passes away, especially if it's unexpected. Um, The other thing that comes into play as well around being a deceased donor is uh, the medical suitability of the person. It can be affected by um, their health and chronic conditions that they may or may not have. Uh, But most um, people are eligible to be donors. The other thing um, that's really important is... um, is taking a Canada-wide approach to maximizing donation and transplantation um, because you may have someone who wants to be a, who is, say, a deceased donor and they, they're offering up um, all of their organs to be available to someone who needs them. Uh, and a deceased donor can make up to eight organs available. <clears throat> but there may be someone at the other end of the country that is a good match for that organ but for system issues across provinces, um, there can be missed opportunities there. Uh, and that's a sad thing for the mm. deceased donor and their family, but it's even more significant for the patient who's on the waiting list and would tremendously benefit and perhaps be able to survive if that uh, match was able to be made. Right. So there are a lot, of, a lot of people working in the system, very committed to helping to improve how well the system functions uh, at a, from a Canada-wide perspective. It sounds like, though, Greg, that we are a bit too much still in our silos, our provincial silos, when it comes to this issue. Um, I, I think people working in the system and delivering care, um, there there are good sharing practices in place, but it, I think in general people would think that there are opportunities to make it even better. So it's not that there's no coordination, it's just that the coordination could be enhanced. Um, and that has benefits for for patients, their families, and everybody working in the system. Right. So we're good, but we still have work to do. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, that's my impression. Yes. All right, Greg. Thank you so much for your time on this. Thank you very much. Appreciate your interest. Well, anything we can do to put the message out there, that's Greg Webster, Director of Acute and Ambulatory Care for Canadian Institute for Health Information. We've been talking a lot about crime recently, particularly in Surrey and all the concerns that they have there. Their latest budget as well, perhaps not having enough for after-school programs or rec centres, community centres, that kind of thing to keep kids busy. Which is why this latest news today is so interesting. The BC government has announced they're going to be spending more money to expand its school-based gang and gun violence prevention program. We're going to learn more about this now with the help of Global News senior reporter Janet Brown. Hi, Janet. 
Good morning, Simeon. It's a fair chunk of money. The province is investing just about $5 million spread over the next three years. And it is for 12 school districts around the province to provide support to students, parents, educators, RCMP, police, uh, you know, etc., community partners. Uh, through gang prevention and awareness training programs. Here is more from Solicitor General Mike Farnworth. We've all seen the heartache and tragedy caused by gun and gang violence across BC, especially here in Surrey. That's why we've taken critical action to better equip youth to resist getting involved in gang-related activity. By providing 500000 in funding for the Surrey Wraparound Program, which has supported more than 800 families and students to change, for change, to change their lives for the better. Providing an additional $2.4 million for the Gang Exiting and Outreach Program over the next three years to support those who are seeking to exit the gang lifestyle. And an additional $6 million through the Civil Forfeiture Crime Prevention and Remediation Grant Program to projects that focus on mentoring youth involved in the gang lifestyle, supporting victims of gender-based violence, and healing and rebuilding in Indigenous communities. Early intervention and prevention programs like ERASE are vital to ensuring our young people are both knowledgeable and resilient to the lure of gangs and gang violence. All right, that is Solicitor General Mike Farnworth. Janet, how does this program work? Like, what is it? Well, it's a coming together of of everybody to discuss and get it on the table and ask for help. That's the first step forward in ending gang life and entry and getting out of it. Coming forward and saying, you know what? I'm either in a gang Right. Or I've been approached by gangsters and I need some help. It's reaching out. And that's the biggest part, Simi. That's what we hear time and time again from gang enforcement members, the RCMP, the province, etc. It's asking for help. And it's also people that know people involved in gangs. And, you know, we hate to say it and we hate to talk about it, but turning them in. Yeah phoning and saying, you know what, I know somebody who's involved in a gang lifestyle. I need help. I need advice in, in, in how to help these people and, and, and walk them out of that gang life. Can you come alongside me and give me some advice, support and help? Interesting. And that is the first step. Students coming forward, because we all know uh, in a school setting, uh, kids are often afraid to speak up. They don't know who to speak up to. But when there are programs in place where children feel safe, uh, can share yeah. their feelings and put things out there, then that's where the help and the healing begins to me. And that is all part of it. This program, this additional funding announced today, uh, just over a million dollars was announced in the springtime for this program. It is called the Erase Program, as we heard Mr. Farnworth say, and that stands for Expect, Respect, and a Safe Education. And I think the title of that says it all. Respect yeah. and a safe education. It's such a simple thing, though, isn't it, Janet? But we've talked about this numerous times about if somebody wants to get out, where do they go? Like, who do they talk to? And I guess this will provide more consistency with these programs. And these school districts around the province, there's 12 in all, including Surrey, have been asking, you know, we need more help. We need more programs for our kids. And yes, this is a first step. 
setting up these organizations, these avenues to exit, to provide more information, and for people who have family members and friends, etc., who also need help in uh, getting their loved ones some advice and, and help getting out of a gang. So, you know, the more money that we can put to ending the gang lifestyle, gangs and violence, etc., the better. And I, I don't think anybody is going to argue with that, Simi. No, I don't think they are. But clearly, this is a very hot topic in Surrey, right? Out of all the communities listed there. This is probably, would you say, the biggest topic in Surrey? Well, you know, uh, it is certainly a big topic in Surrey, but you know what? It's also big in Kelowna, and that's a community that's getting some of the funding. Nanaimo, Prince George, I mean, all areas of the province deal with these issues. And I know Surrey gets a lot of attention about gangs and guns, etc. But you talk to any law enforcement officer, uh, they say, you know, it happens everywhere. We have, you know, people start in these gangs in dial-a-dope operations. And we hear from the police that children are getting attracted into these dial-a-dope operations as young as the age of nine sometimes, Simi. Yeah. Grade three level. Crazy. So that, that's where this funding is going to, trying to prevent that. And if the kids are already involved in something like that, trying to provide them with the information and the help to get them out of it before they become right. teenagers, early 20s, and then maybe sometimes it's too late, unfortunately. So true. Janet, thanks so much for that. My pleasure, Simi. That is Janet Brown, our Global News senior reporter. Well, today on Science with Simi, we are going to introduce you to a very exceptional person. I mean, what does it take to be a cancer researcher? How do you help the world to learn more about leukemia or breast cancer? Well, somebody that we're going to introduce you to knows all about this. It's Dr. Connie Eves. Get this. Dr. Eves has been doing this for 45 years and she was one of, if not the first employee at the BC Cancer Agency. She's their longest tenured employee that they have there. Uh, so think about all the changes that she has seen during that time. And she is an exceptional researcher, too. She's being honored this week as one of Chatelaine's Women of the Year. We had a chance to chat with her about her exceptional career. Well, Dr. Eves, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this. First of all, congratulations on being named one of Chatelaine's Women of the Year. Thank you so much. It is actually a total surprise and um, wonderful. How can you say total surprise, Dr. Eves? Come on, look at some of the work that you have been doing for years. Uh, Tell us a bit about that. What have you been working on? Well, first of all, let me say that I think it is fabulous, and I did not know that Shadowlin actually was a promulgator of uh, recognizing science, and I think that is so great because... Uh, I don't actually read Chatelaine um, because I'm not working in, in spheres where that magazine is, uh, is on display, but I know a lot of women do, and it's a great way to communicate. Uh, so the rest of your question was, uh, what was it actually recognizing, I think, yes. if I recall. Yes. Uh, so our group, um, and it's a group, it's, you know, I'm... I'm the leader of it, uh, although my husband and I actually worked together for half a century. Um, So it's a bigger group than just what I lead. Uh, Our group has focused since the beginning on trying to understand normal cells that can become cancerous, both in the blood and then uh, about 20 years ago, I also started working on breast. And then 
the actual process by which the malignant transformation occurs. And uh, so we're very busy in the latter part now, but you can't tell whether a cell is abnormal if you don't know what the normal cell uh, is like uh, that it comes from. So these things uh, are very important to do in parallel. And we are uh, well known for having made major advances in both of those areas, even to the point of suggesting a treatment in one kind of leukemia, which uh, was actually trialed here in Vancouver uh, and then got superseded by more advanced uh, treatments uh, that came along uh, subsequently. And, and now we're trying to do the same thing in breast cancer. Now, I understand, Dr. Eves, you're also the BC Cancer Agency's longest-serving employee with 45 years of experience. Can you tell us about some of the changes that you've seen during that time? What kind of medical advances have been made during your time in the, in the, in the business? So, uh, you can imagine that in half a century, yeah. uh, there have been huge changes in many, many areas, uh, both science and uh, the application of scientific advances um, in, in cancer treatment, cancer diagnosis, the whole revolution of understanding genes and identifying them has been a huge step forward. Our ability to isolate cells, to image cells in people, all, the whole imaging, MRI, PET scanning, all that, that, those are huge advances. They're not ones that I use on a scientific basis, but in terms of clinical uh, medicine, the, um, the concept of using bone marrow transplants was just coming on scene when we started um, back in the 1970s, and now it's uh, very widely practiced. The use of uh, growth factors to promote recovery of blood cells is now routine in many patient populations. That was all a product of uh, laboratories studying what are those factors, right. learning how to purify them, and uh, turning them into treatment uh, products. So many, many, many areas, the whole revolution in um, computers um, right. so that we have communication, we can transfer clinical information instantaneously, reports, um, people's files, uh, scientific discoveries. We can communicate with people all over the world, you know, in minutes. These are all huge advances um, that have revolutionized the speed and the, and the um, complexity with which we can uh, investigate new things and apply them. But a cancer diagnosis, if you'd gotten that 45 years ago versus getting a cancer diagnosis now, I would imagine all the work that you've done in that field and others, it's a very different thing to get that diagnosis today, isn't it? It definitely is, but we still have a long way to go. Um, many cancers are now, the survival is prolonged, but the but the result for people is not so wonderful. So we we still need huge revolutions in how we can learn how to treat people so that there are not the toxicities that are still prevalent in many cancers, and some cancers still very bad. 
So we got a, we still got lots of work ahead of us. Yeah, I'm sure we do. You talked about women and science. Do you feel that's an area now getting more recognition? Oh, I think that's huge. Uh, you know, the, the last few years, this has become a, a major um, focus of attention. And although in my earlier stages, I, w- I wasn't so concerned with promoting women in science, it's obvious now that um, those of us who have had a track record in that area as women can do a lot, not just mentoring in our own communities, but standing up and pointing out the deficiencies and the uh, need for accelerating opportunities and inspiring younger uh, young kids, for that matter, to realize that they can they can stand up and have it all. What keeps you curious? And like obviously with research and what you're doing, there's questions that you're trying to answer, but what is it that keeps you curious? What questions are you still looking to get answered? Well, you know, you could say I never grew up. Um, <laughs> we're born curious. And um, the idea of, of finding out something that you you never knew before is is just intoxicating. And I often make the analogy, it's like exploring. It's like um, climbing a mountain. You get to the top and you see more mountains. You just want to climb more mountains. You you don't sort of sit there and gloat over the fact that you climbed a mountain. Of course, there is a very brief, transient uh, reward for having achieved a major undertaking and maybe even found something you didn't expect to find. But it just really whets your appetite to keep going. You've also said that one of the most important things in your career that you've really valued is uh, mentoring other scientists, in particular women scientists. How do you do that? How do you decide that, okay, I'm going to work with these people, I'm going to help them along? Well, in the kind of research that I do, it's mostly done by having trainees who come in with very little knowledge or understanding of of where the problems really are. They just can't know enough when they start. Uh, they have a broad educational basis. They have a desire to, as I did when I was a young trainee, to, to contribute and understand and, and explore in, in an area that would have an impact. But, but they don't know very much. So there's a huge training uh, process that starts after you graduate from university uh, with a bachelor's degree and usually takes, you know, close to 10 years before you really become independent and able to direct your own, uh, your own research program. So the people that I've trained in the lab have usually been here for anywhere from three to eight years. So we become very close and it's, a difficult process. You know, it's, as I often say, it's all about failure. If, if it wasn't about failure, you would be working on problems that we already knew the answers to and somebody else would have done it. So there's a lot of trauma involved and a need for team support and team interaction. So we become like families and 
uh, after you've trained people for 10, 20, 30 years, they are grown up, they're running their own labs, they remain in the family. So I have, you know, a family of 100 people <laughs> now. Um, it's a wonderful situation to be in. Uh, and I feel very strongly about using uh, what I can to uh, endow people with uh, hope and, and confidence and curiosity and principles of rigor so that they can fulfill their dreams to contribute. Well, Dr. Eves, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure talking to you, and I hope the message goes out. Oh, it certainly does. How inspiring is she? That's Dr. Connie Eves, co-founder of BC Cancer's Terry Fox Laboratory, and she's one of Chatelaine's Women of the Year. What a great tribute to her work and everything she's done. You know, with all the controversy right now about the Chinese telecom giant Huawei, think about this for a moment. If that huge company decided to take its research staff and offices from the United States and move to Canada, how would we or how should we feel about that? Big company, big jobs. Normally, we'd probably go, oh, great. Okay, economic generator. But we are talking about a very controversial company here where the the daughter of the founder is still, you know, waiting extradition to the United States, fighting extradition to the United States. Uh, that's very controversial. And as well, so many questions about their 5G technology and their connections to the Chinese government on that. So what does this mean for Canada? Is this a good thing or should we avoid this possibility? To talk more about this, we're joined now by Christian Luprecht, who is the political science professor at Royal Military College in Queen's University. Christian, thanks for being here. My pleasure. Now, we, we read about this in the Globe and Mail newspaper initially. What did you think when you heard about the possibility that they may move their offices to Canada? I mean, they're in a considerable duress in the United States, and so uh, I guess they feel that uh, uh, perhaps they can't carry out business the way they would like um, it, this is a move that many U.S. companies have made for a couple of reasons. One is that uh, we've built some really interesting clusters in Vancouver. If you think about the AI cluster in Montreal, that or the city of Montreal and the province of Quebec have invested heavily in, and that has attracted some very large U.S. companies to set up, in particular, R&D components here. The other is that um, under the current uh, regime in the U.S., companies are increasingly having difficulty uh, bring high-tech um, uh, talent um, uh, to the United States under work immigration visas. And so it's easier to bring that talent to Canada, and so that's been another incentive. So in that sense, uh, Huawei is not necessarily an outlier in the decision that it's making. It is an outlier uh, in the fact that uh, um, it is a company that has a uh, significant uh, political profile, shall we say. Yeah, so does that put the Canadian government in a bit of a tough spot? So, sure, I mean, as Canadians, I think we need to think about uh, what it is that we want to support. Inherently, uh, Huawei um, will benefit from Canadian taxpayer subsidies, both direct and indirect. It already does so by virtue of some of the university research that it sponsors. It will also be able to benefit from tax credits. Um, and so, as Canadians, we need to think about whether we want to invest our money in a company that uh, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute um, in open source reports has directly linked to human rights abuses, uh, not just in Xinjiang and equipment that has been sold there, uh, both directly to state parties and to third parties by Huawei, 
Uh, but Huawei is also building out, for instance, networks uh, in some of the uh, um, more problematic authoritarian systems in the world. Think about Zimbabwe, think about Belarus, and Huawei built the uh, quasi-social credit system in Venezuela, where uh, the ID card system um, was built by Huawei, and that ID card system is required on the one hand for your food stamps, on the other hand, you require that card in order to vote. Right. Uh, and to be able to qualify for food stamps, you have to vote. And uh, so the government uh, is believed to be able to track how you voted, for instance. So do we want to support that sort of a company? Yeah. Taxpayer money. That's what I'm wondering. Like, that really sounds to me like a political hot potato. And if they decide to move their offices to Canada, is that forcing the government to finally say how they are going to deal with Huawei? Yeah, it's also question and uh, the IT, uh, the intellectual property and research and that's being generated through that research and development, um, uh, there will be no, it will be very difficult to subject that to export controls uh, if it is essentially basic research and if Huawei is not building, uh, for instance, military-grade equipment uh, that might then fall under uh, our export control provisions. Um, On the other end, you might argue that, well, Huawei, uh, if they're just investing in the mobile phone research and development, mobile phones are so insecure that um, uh, perhaps there they, they, it's par for the course. It's, it doesn't matter which company comes to Canada and, and does research. Uh, whereas if they invest in, uh, in switches um, for the Internet and for mobile phone towers, that those are the components that uh, we're under pressure to ban. So if Huawei then does research and development on these components in Canada, you can bet that we're going to come uh, under immense pressure yeah. uh, from the U.S. Senate Intelligence Committee and other components in the U.S. Uh, so I think Huawei, this is also very much a, a political decision for them as much as a business decision. And is that a test, do you think, then, for Canada? Is Huawei going to say, well, let's see how far the Canadian government is willing to go here? Well, this is so difficult to say, right, because uh, we don't really understand the ownership structures within Huawei. Many people have tried to uh, investigate those, but they are so opaque that we don't understand what the relationships are and what instructions, to what extent Huawei is making simply um, a well-informed business decision that is in their best business interests and to what extent um, uh, they got a call, given their, their, their parallel structure of Communist Party members within the entire um, CEO, uh, senior C-suite hierarchy, um, that basically instructed them, look, you're going to, going to, on the one hand, have to put more pressure on Canada. On the other hand, offer them some sort of incentive to um, get some movement on the Meng Wanzhou case. And so uh, perhaps if you uh, offer them some R&D benefits, uh, that that might then uh, appease the Canadian government in order to try to intervene in this particular case. And, well, and again, that makes the company so difficult and controversial. That's what I was thinking. It, it also, once again, puts Canada right in the middle. Like, even this situation between Meng Wanzhou and the United States has put Canada right in the middle. Uh, and it sounds like we will continue to be there at, until, at some point, I guess, the government decides that they're going to figure out which side of the fence they are finally going to be on. Well, Canada is always going to try to be a follower um, on these types of uh, companies. And it's going to be difficult for the government, of course, to come out explicitly and say, look, we don't want this sort of company to do research and development here. Because Huawei would say, well, why do you treat us differently than you treat any other high-tech development company? And, of course, there's also going to be uh, municipalities and provinces that would ostensibly benefit from the jobs and right. investments are going to say, like, look, we, we want that money and uh, 
um, in, in, in potentially economically difficult times in some parts of the country. Um, so uh, it, it is. It is. Uh, I, I think certainly this is part of the calculation uh, to try to generate more division um, and uh, and more political controversy um, surrounding right. uh, surrounding Huawei in particular favor. Now, Christian, do you think Huawei has been hurt at all by what's been happening in the last couple of years? The debate over using their 5G technology, the situation with the United States and Meng Wanzhou, has that hurt the company at all? Uh, the company is under immense pressure um, in terms of uh, in terms of global sales. This is particularly why there's so much concern about the potential of um, uh, other five eyes countries, uh, that is to say, the United Kingdom and uh, and Canada, in terms of what their decision on Huawei is. Because if you think about the international security pyramid, you have the United States at the top. You have the other four of the five eyes countries: Canada, the United Kingdom, Australia, and New Zealand. And then you have other allied part, uh, countries, NATO, and partner countries below that. And so, if the five eyes countries all decide they're going to shut out Huawei for uh, security and intelligence reasons and the prospect of Huawei uh, through their technology, the Chinese government being able to throttle, uh, redirect, uh, or otherwise uh, read Canadian data traffic and thus possibly be able to influence both our economy and our political decision making. Um, I think there'll be other, many other countries in the West that will simply say this is, uh, this company is probably just uh, too, uh, um, it, it's too much of a, of a risk. Right. Uh, to have that company build out the switches. So um, and we can see in terms of their sales um, and the size that it contributes in terms of R&D to China and the Chinese economy, given the Chinese economy is already ailing from, uh, from terrorists under the, uh, that have been imposed by the Trump administration. This is a big challenge for Huawei. Christian, thank you so much for talking to us about this today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. That is Christian Luprecht, political science professor at Royal Military College in Queen's University. We wanted to talk today about the issue of sexual harassment. There's a new report that has been released from Statistics Canada with some very interesting stats in there uh, for men and for women. One in three women, so about 32%, and one in eight men, about 13%, say they have experienced unwanted sexual behavior in public. Now, for both men and women, younger age and sexual orientation increased the odds of experiencing this behavior more than any other factor. So to be more specific about that, being younger and of a sexual orientation other than heterosexual was associated with much higher odds of experiencing sexual harassment. The most common types of unwanted sexual behavior that were experienced by women in public were unwanted sexual attention, about 25%, unwanted physical contact, 17%, and unwanted comments about their sex or gender, about 12%. Now, these were also the three most common types of behavior that were experienced by men who said that they had experienced this, although it was a a lower rate at about 6% each. One in five women, 18%, say they also experienced online harassment in the 12 months before the survey. And you know what? Men said that too. About 14% of men said the same. And women were more likely, though, than men to know who their perpetrator was. Women, 28%, also more likely than men at 19%, to have taken measures such as blocking others online 
or deleting accounts in order to protect themselves from online harassment. Now, it's a, it's a very eye-opening survey that they did here because it's not just women they're talking about. It's a lot of men who are experiencing this as well. So we wanted to talk about this, particularly in the workplace, because a number of these incidents that people cited in the survey did have to do with workplace behavior. So joining us now is Sarah Lehman, who's a criminal defense lawyer for the Sarah Lehman Law Group. Sarah, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Is this something that the legal industry has seen a lot more of, like our workplaces having to deal with these sexual harassment issues more? Well, I can definitely confirm as a criminal defense lawyer, I am dealing with an increase in sexual assault allegations in the criminal courts. Now, when it comes to workplace harassment, I wouldn't be surprised if employment lawyers would report the same kind of experience in their practices as well. Right. Okay. So what you see in court, is this people coming forward to say this has happened to me? Or are you seeing more criminal cases? I'm seeing more criminal cases, which means that we are having more people come forward and share their experiences, that those types of experiences are being investigated by police and that charges are being forwarded, in my view, more frequently than ever before. Hmm. And has anything changed about the process? Has it become easier or are people more willing to come forward? Can you talk about that? You know, I really don't know what factors are are behind this. I think that there's been a number of different um, interests going on here. So I think that the Me Too movement has been a huge source of people talking more about their experiences and being more forthcoming about what's going on. I think that it's helped to shed some of the stigma and fear around coming forward. Now, that's not to say that it's easy for a person to talk about sexual harassment or sexual assault that they've experienced. Certainly, it's not. It takes a great deal of courage. But I do think that the Me Too movement has helped people be more willing to come forward and share those experiences. And have you heard that from people? Have they told you that? Well, I'm usually dealing with people who are accused, of course, of these types of offenses. So I'm not dealing um, with people who are the complainants per se. But certainly, you know, in my own life and um, in the other work that I do around different charitable organizations and things like that, I do think that there is uh, an increase in, in the willingness for people to share their experiences and stories without the same kind of stigma and shame. Okay, first of all, your work sounds fascinating because that means that you also have to adjust to this, right? Like, you are there more cases that come your way as a result? Certainly, there are. Um, I think that uh, there's been an increase, at least in my practice, when it comes to sexual assault allegations. And um, I don't know if that's because there's more uh, sexual assault happening, per se, But I do think that more people are coming forward and police are probably taking it much more seriously. Ah, interesting. So uh, do these cases go to court more often, would you say? They do. They do end up in court. And, uh, you know, the outcome, of course, depends on a number of different factors. But seeing statistics like this coming out of Statistics Canada really doesn't surprise me, either as a criminal defense lawyer or as a woman who just is living in the public sphere. Right. How has the legal profession had to change to deal with all these complaints as well? Well, I think that what we're seeing is much more in terms of policy development when it comes to instances of sexual harassment and assault. And again, this is something that employment lawyers are adapting to every day. I think that we are seeing more workplaces develop more comprehensive policies around sexual harassment. 
and assault in their own jurisdictions in order to deal with the issues before it ends up becoming a criminal matter, for instance. Right. All right. Well, Sarah, listen, thank you so much for talking to us about this. Well, thank you so much for having me. Uh, So fascinating. That's Sarah Lehman, criminal defense lawyer for the Sarah Lehman Law Group, talking about these new stats out today.